Better? <laughs> Sorry, last night it was on when they gave it to me, so. But you caught the first part, right? So we're good. Cool. Pick it up. Now, indecision is something everyone struggles with. From the BCs to the 80s, across gender lines, people are faced with indecision. It is, like I said, a human condition. This week, we have planned to take it, this topic in the ta context of millennials, trying to decide in the digital age of unlimited options. But I'm going to level with you. I'm not going to use phrases like hashtag FOMO because I'm trying to appeal to you or because I think we should just blame it on the iPhones. While we as a generation have more options with equally as many obstacles than ever, I think this goes a little deeper. What do I mean by this? Well, let me give you an example. It seems that the adults in our lives think our inner chooser is stymied by situations like this. The size of the Starbucks menu, the number of Netflix shows, which fad fast food place to eat, or who to simply text back first. But when I listen to the complaints and lamentations of my friends, or I take a step back and examine what situations pain me at a deeper level, I hear situations more like this. Why can't God tell me what kind of job to get? Where does God want me to go to school? Is this the person I should marry? Where in the world am I even going to live? What am I supposed to do with my life? These are the kinds of questions I hear plaguing our generation, and it is to you, the new or mature disciple of Jesus, on the precipice of choices that impact your life in a real way, who I'd like to help in making decisions. For those of you who are interested in learning more after this, I highly recommend the book Decision Making and the Will of God, from which I gained a great deal of insight. But what I'd like to look at first is the process of how we commonly decide things. Maybe by looking at how the vast majority of us do decision making, we can find out what causes us so much grief in the first place. Let's start at the beginning and look at some of the underlying assumptions we have when faced with these dilemmas. These assumptions and the way in which they manifest themselves in belief and action are what I'd like to call the traditional model. In this traditional model, God has three wills. His sovereign will, his moral will, and his individual will. You can visualize these as three concentric circles, with the sovereign being the outermost and the individual being a dot at the center of the moral will. Now, let's go ahead and briefly, briefly break these wills down. The sovereign will is God's plan for the entire universe. It is what he has destined to happen since the dawn of creation. It cannot be known by man except for what he's already revealed to us, and it cannot be broken. Since we cannot know it, there is no use trying to discern it, and since it will absolutely happen, there is no use in worrying about it. For the Christian, it is important to remember that once I've made a decision, no matter how wise or well-planned, I must now submit to God's omniscient plan and allow my life to ultimately be shaped by him. So when it comes to decision-making, we consider the sovereign will in two critical ways. First, we realize that though we may have plans and decisions made, we must ultimately relinquish them to the plan God has for creation. No one can fight it, and by realizing that, we can find it easier to trust in him when plans fail and dreams are crushed. Second, we are to remember that he is good and just above all. If he is indeed these things, then who better to decide the fate of the universe who better to have the final say on what happens, even in my plans? If we can remember this, then what is there left to worry about? Next is the moral will. 
God's moral will is everything he has said is allowable and is not a sin. His moral will is revealed throughout the Bible in its entirety. Some of you may be even able to name some of the tenets, such as do not murder, do not steal, have no other gods before me. These were conveniently engraved on a stone tablet that we may know them explicitly. Now, caveat, there are gray areas in life where there may not be a steadfast line as to what action would or would not be moral. But as a whole, we will assume that God's moral plan is fully available and accessible to us. It is this will that God desires us to be in and serves as the lane bumpers in which the Christian should aspire to lead his or her life. Finally, we arrive at the individual will. This comes by many different names, but most commonly is God's perfect will. It's called that because it's his first choice for you in all things. Consider the prospect of marriage. God has rules denoting who one should marry, specifically that they should hold the same beliefs about him. But within the individual will is your soulmate. That person your parents have prayed for your entire life, they are who you were destined to be with. Anyone else is second place. This may seem extreme, but how often do we expect this in decision-making? How often do we fray our own ends because we believe in a destiny? We see counselors, we pray, we fast, we tear our hair out not to make the best decision, but in order that we may make the perfect decision. In the traditional model, we do this by consulting road signs. These are things in our lives that supposedly point towards our destinies if we listen just right and consist of misinterpretations of the Bible, circumstances, inner impressions, common sense, personal desires, so many others. We read every line of the Bible as a personal promise to us, and even with honest hearts, read more into Scripture than what is actually there. We, we sometimes use the Bible like a Ouija board, opening it to a random place and dropping a pencil and getting violently confused when it seems we must now lie on our side for a year or go live in a whale. <laughs> we see billboards relating to that hard decision coming up, and even the best of us feel that rising excitement in our hearts at a literal sign. We feel called or led to specific things and attribute them to a still small voice from God leading us when, who knows? Sure, that may be God. What about the influence of your overly involved parents? Maybe the enemy? Bad Taco Bell? <laughs> we claim that because something makes sense, it must be the right thing to do. I mean, what could be bad about common sense? If it doesn't hurt anyone, how bad could a lie be? Surely felons have given up their right to personhood. An eye for an eye? And these are just some of the ways we look at all these sorts of road signs in trying to distill the perfect will of God for us. Here lies the fundamental decision of Christian decision-making. Does God have an individual destiny for each of us? And if so, how do we find it? If there is, the implication is that in every decision, big or small, God has a preferred path that he would like you to take. He has a job he would prefer you to be in. He has a spouse he would prefer you to fall in love with. On and on in every area of life. There's nothing the individual will does not exist. There's simply God's plan for creation and the moral bounteous place that you may operate in it. Therefore, you have agency and even scarier, responsibility. 
To answer this question, let's begin with another. Is the traditional view of decision-making that I just set up biblically founded? There are no explicit verses with a definitive yes or no answer. So instead of combing through Scripture, trying to find an explicitly affirmative verse for either case, let's examine how the individual will of God fits into the overall teachings of Scripture. The first flaw with the traditional model. Scripture is full of phrases pertaining to God's will, but as we discussed before, he has a minimum of two. In verses like Colossians 1-9, we read, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Sentiments like this are repeated in verses like Colossians 4.12, Romans 12.1-2, Ephesians 2.10, Ephesians 5.15-17, and so many more. But what do the authors mean here? Let's look at the context of Colossians 1-9 through in 10-12. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. What is the author trying to say here? A paraphrase might be, I pray that you know the will of God, that you may be righteous people, living in positive ways that please him. In this verse and so many others, the will of God being spoken of is moral. Authors of the early church cared that God's people knew of his moral will so that they may be righteous and pleasing to God, not that they would know the details of their destiny. This dichotomy between the moral and individual wills of God has heavy implications in the role of road signs and the traditional model. Let's take a look at the role of the Holy Spirit in inner impressions. In the traditional model, it is the indwelling voice of God in the believer that guides us to God's will for us through faint impressions that we can only hear if we are especially in tune. But is this truly how the Holy Spirit works? In John chapter 16, we read this. When he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. When we speak of inner impressions, we are often referring to the Holy Spirit who was left in us to aid the church after Christ's ascension. This passage clearly details the role of the Holy Spirit in this world. The second person of the Trinity who dwells within us and is eternally bound to our souls, is here to guide you into all truth. It would be easy to misinterpret portions of this passage as evidence that the Holy Spirit is here to guide us vocationally. But within the full context, we see that our inner impressions are here to guide you morally. It is through this understanding and lens that we should read about his will the intended meaning referring to the laws and guidelines of right living that he has placed before us. Now for the second flaw. In the beginning, God allowed man to eat from any tree in the garden except for one, as outlined in Genesis chapter 2. God says in verses 16 and 17, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Garden of Eden was God's first example of how he and his people would commune. It is within this framework that perfection was had even before evil entered the world. And in this framework, God allowed man a choice. 
He had no specific destiny for man other than just to do the earth and stay within God's moral bounds. He did not explain how to name the animals or how many children they were to have, only that they were to live within the holy will of God. It is also important to note that it is not in God's nature to be crafty or hidden. In the garden, his will was explicitly stated. Likewise, salvation is not hidden from us. Our shortcomings, his grace, and all that he wishes to be known and all that we are responsible for are fully revealed. Put another way, to do that which God does not desire is disobedience. That is the fundamental definition of sin. How then is it fair that God would desire a life for us that he hides? How does a beautiful, just, wonderful God justify hiding from us his desires for our lives and holding us accountable when he has not even revealed those things to us? That sounds nothing like him. A generous father, a good, good father, as we often sing, who hides the best version of his children's lives from them and then holds them accountable for it? No, that sounds nothing like him. This is what we must remember when we read about the individual will of God being alluded to in the Bible. Don't mistake me. It exists in certain circumstances for certain people. How could we ever deny the events of Acts 9? Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. We must acknowledge that in this passage, there is a clear will for Ananias in the life of Paul and cultivating this new kingdom. But this was revealed to him through a clear, supernatural means of communication. Does this mean that there is, after all, an individual will of God for all of us? No. What it means is that in our lives, God may explicitly guide us in a specific will to fulfill growth in his kingdom, but it will not come through secret channels or enigmatic riddles. The examples given to us of God giving specific commands to his followers demonstrates a real clarity to the way that God is to talk to us. They will be rare, once in a lifetime, if we're lucky. So we must not wait idly for them. But when they do come, we will know. And it is our job to be ready and in a position of acceptance for what he has in store for us. Now, it was about five years ago when I began Running Start and had my first encounter with real decision-making. For those of you who don't know, Running Start is a program where upperclassmen in high school can begin college classes early. Now, since it was college, these were the classes that were going to contribute to my major. More importantly, these were the first important decisions in my life that might contribute to my future. For many of you today, these may seem like trivial decisions in retrospect, but for me, they were anything but. Not only did I have to consider whether or not to do a difficult major or whether to do the arts or sciences, but I had to figure out where God fit in the mix. Pragmatically, engineering was a clear choice. I was good at it. I enjoyed it somewhat. And it was a promising field where a career was all but guaranteed. 
what 17-year-old wants to be an engineer? Isn't there more to life than bills and paying for a sickness you never asked to have? I wanted to pursue a career where I didn't hate five-sevenths of my life and that had meaning in everything I did. Whatever happened to music? Art? Things that wouldn't be just work, but enjoyable? But to pursue those things meant I had to leave other things behind. I was dealt a hand of multiple sicknesses, none of the least of which crippled my legs, and at 17, I was already staring down the barrel of a life loaded with medical bills, not to mention all the other expenses of just living. How would it be at all responsible for me to pick a path that, while fun or meaningful, meant I would be living under the burdens of not knowing enough, of not making enough to just stay healthy? Then, there was God. What did he want from me? I know plenty of mature Christians in my life who have regular boring jobs, but doesn't he want all of you? I understood that you were supposed to do everything like you were doing it just for him, but what could be a greater feat of worship than devoting every day to him after pursuing ministry? What could make a better career than to go to work every day furthering Christ's purpose in this world? Though I know Christ's role in occupations better now, my misconceptions led to me feeling like nothing short of a homeless preacher would ever be good enough for him. But I never got my answer. I prayed. I asked. I sought. But there were no signs from God to be found. And I'll be honest with you. It led to doubt insecurity, and a deep mistrust in God and whatever plan he had for me. It was a painful time of life where I felt that I was not only going to let everyone around me down, but that I was going to miss the wonderful life God had laid out for me, all the while being too poor to afford legs that worked right. Trying to discern what secret will God had for me that would lead to the perfect decision actually led me down a dark road that had nothing but rottenness, despair, and a distance in relationship with him. This then leaves us with a glaring question. How do we make decisions? The answer is wisdom. Easy to say, much, 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 much harder to execute. But what makes wise decisions so difficult? In my experience, there are three large areas that overwhelm us. Our reasons, our criteria, and our competency. Reasons are difficult because as flawed beings, how do we know that what we are doing is right? It's hard to trust someone whose failures you've seen, and whose failures have you seen more than your own? From reasons stem criteria. From flawed reasons come flawed criteria. Two options are so equal, what criteria could even separate them? If one fit a criterion better, how much easier would a decision be? I wouldn't be in this place to begin with if I had a simple checklist that told me what to decide. And finally, this leads to a lack of competency. We feel that we are not worthy or able to decide. So, we either defer to another person who decides for us, 
or we drag our heels until something happens to us. In my previous example, I let other people decide. Parents, friends, you can't count how many times I asked for advice, all the while concealing that I was just too afraid to pick something. And I dragged my heels. Sure, I picked classes, but at the last minute possible, I pretty much had someone else sit down at the computer and type in what I was going to take. I was a passive observer, not an active player. But instead of me going through these one by one, let me try and relay them through a set of recent personal experiences about how reasons, criteria, and competency are to be had. The scene is not even two months ago. I had recently graduated with my BSEE, and now I had some pretty tough choices to make. Throughout my entire life, I have always been an academic, thriving on curiosity and excelling in the classroom. So at the end of my learning career, my natural inclination was to go forth and do graduate work. On one hand, I love to learn. I'm good at it, and moving to a real university would be a fantastic adventure. On the other hand, I was unbelievably tired of the sleepless nights, huge assignments, and stress associated with college culture. So instead of going for graduate work, I could just as easily go and get a full-time job and start my career. What made this choice difficult was that neither seemed to outweigh the other. Getting a job meant being able to stay local, finally beginning to make money, and working in my field. I would have the opportunity to continue ministering at my home church and bringing Jesus' light to all my new co-workers. Graduate work meant moving to Pullman, getting an assistantship position for income, and doing exactly what I love. I would have the opportunity to make new friends in a risky new environment and be Jesus' light to all those booze-guzzling heathens. <laughs> this felt like a truly vocational decision one in which I was within the moral bumpers no matter what I chose. But even though they were both morally acceptable, the path they led down would alter my life in very permanent ways. It was at this time I would be lying if I said I didn't ask God for a script. The words to say, the choices to make, just given to me so that I could lead the life that he wanted me to lead. But unlike before, this time, I knew it was up to me to decide and that God would have my back no matter what. The choice came down to a surprisingly simple moment. In 1 Peter 3.7, we read, Husbands, in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect. Now, Robin had been infinitely supportive and was willing to go anywhere with me. She was simply everything a wife is asked to be. But our entire relationship had been with me in college. All she had ever known was my hectic education schedule. Homework, deadlines, stress, exam prep, and then back to more stress. So here was where my revelation lied. God did not have either path destined for me. Both were routes I could have pursued and most likely succeeded at. Neither was immoral, and I trust that he would have blessed us in whatever decision we ended up making. But in wisdom... I chose the route that allowed my wife to have more time with me. There was no spiritual impression. No stranger randomly walked up and told me what decision to choose. I just knew that God would bless us wherever we went and chose the route that I thought best. 
So it was that easy, right? To just pick one thing from a Bible verse and call it quits? Not quite. Let's go back to the previous difficulties of decision-making. First, I had to address my reasons for choosing. Throughout this whole process, I had layered reasons for why I leaned towards one choice or the other. Some were honorable. A job meant providing for my family. Research meant using the most of the gifts God had given me. Others came from a dark place. A job meant security in a paycheck and no longer relying on God and his uncertainty. Grad school meant moving away and leaving hard relationships behind and starting over fresh where I didn't have to deal with old wounds. To begin to make a wise choice, I first had to allow God to tear out the reasons that were based in sinful nature so that I may make decisions that reflected him. So the true first step in making a wise decision is become vulnerable to God and allow him to shape your desires to fit his. After all, if your reasons stem from a sinful place, is this really a vocational decision with equal options? They may be that at the surface level, but in your heart, you harbor a morality of options that is a little less apparent. And this church, this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. He comes as the inner witness to guide you, to reveal those things which are rotten and decaying in your heart, and to restore you to a place where you can make real wise decisions. He is not here to tell you which shoe to put on first, but to align you so that you may be righteous inside, so that wisdom may flow forth from you. For me, as the selfish reasons and desires of being secure apart from God and being able to just hit the magic reset button were pulled away, the Holy Spirit revealed reasons from which I was able to discern a wise criterion. These reasons and desires went something like this to do what is most beneficial for my family, to sacrifice anything so my wife can have all she needs and more, to be in a place where I can use my gifts for effective ministering, and to be in a culture where I can grow further in spirit. What I noticed was quite fascinating. It was that from these corrections, as wisdom increased, the range of vocational decisions decreased. What I mean by this is that as we grow in wisdom, we come closer to knowing the mind of God and his design for creation. Now, we already have the full moral will of God available to us, but wisdom allows us to see how our choices fit into this will in brand new ways. We see how our actions often have moral consequences we never even considered. All because now we are more in tune with the intent and design of God's creation. So as our attunement with this increases, the scope of truly morally neutral decisions decreases. Now that my reasons were in alignment, criteria was next to consider. And here is where things ultimately get tricky. After our reasons have been changed and God has done work in us, we must still sit down and decide. Pros, cons lists, counseling, research, all these things are good. And what I found is that 
we must simply ask God for the right tools and to do the best that we can. In Philippians 2.25, Paul says, I think I ought to send my dear friend Epiroditus back to you. He is a follower and a worker and a soldier of the Lord, just as I am. Catch what Paul is saying here, and note that it is littered throughout the New Testament. Why did Paul decide what he did? Because he thought it was his best option. Chances are, he asked for wisdom, weighed his options, and picked the best one. It's just as I mentioned earlier. I had two choices, both equally suitable, and picked the one I thought to benefit most. This is all I have to offer on criteria. Once your reasons are aligned, ask for God to grant you wisdom. Read your Bible. Consult others that you may weigh your options as he desires and choose the best one. Now, I live in the decision I made. Do I regret it? Second-guess myself? Doubt that this is God's plan for me? Well, I'd be lying if I said I was ever sure of myself. But I do believe that we are competent to choose. And that competency of choice is something God rejoices in us having. I'm reminded of the time Paul rejected an opportunity God put in front of him. In 1 Corinthians 2, 12-13, we read, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, and a door stood open for me in the Lord, I had no peace in my spirit, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them, and went on to Macedonia. In this passage, we find Paul faced with an opportunity to preach the good news, spread the kingdom, and God is opening a door that he can waltz right through. How could this not be the evidence for an individual will? But instead, Paul decides against this and goes on to do what he thinks is best. Don't miss what's happening here. The God of everything, who has orchestrated all that ever was and all that ever will be, the eternal three-in-one, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, opened a door for Paul, and he said, pass. Did God make a mistake? Did he just know so much that he happened to overlook this small detail? No. And the implications of this are quite astounding. First, we are being shown here that we are expected to be walking in decision-making alongside God as co-creators. He's not up in the clouds passing down orders. In situations like this, he is suggesting options as part of a team, a team you happen to be the other half of. Secondly, you are not only expected to make decisions, but you have been entrusted to make suggestions apparently on par with him. We read in Scripture that we have been given the mind of God, and this is exactly where it applies. We have redeemed hearts and minds, sanctified to reflect him, that we may now decide alongside Christ in an intimate relationship that is truly two-sided. Believe it or not, God sees you as competent to decide. He gives wisdom to those who seek it, has given every believer the mind of Christ, and sees us as friends, not robots. If that doesn't endorse your competency to decide, then I don't know what will. 
And here we sit at the great climax of decision-making. So what? Where does that leave me? Unable to decide and insecure in past choices. Why would he put me through all this? For some of you, you may feel crushed by the tyranny of God. You feel that if only he didn't have these unrealistic, hidden expectations of you, you'd be free to live a life of freedom with him. Good news. The weight is lifted. The shackles of tyranny are gone because they were never there to begin with. The God we are here today to worship is one who delights in you making decisions and who yearns for you to bring your desires and your dreams and your passions into life with him. He's not frustrated with you every time you improperly determine what you think his secret destiny for you is. And for some of you, you wish you were given a script. Wouldn't life just be so much easier if you knew the next step? Instead of second-guessing yourself and trying to determine God's secret destiny for you, why not just have him lay it all out there outright? Funny enough, we as Christians often wish for a God that is better than the one we have now. If only I could earn a little piece of that grace he's given is one I often find myself in. But here's the amazing thing. He's better than we could ever imagine. We may believe our version is better, and I empathize with you. But understand, he is perfect and has invited you into a relationship with him where you are free to decide. He doesn't want a robot he programmed and wound up himself. Like before, this is a God who desires you. He wants you to bring your desires, your gifts, your everything along into life with him. So instead of trying to distill, distill this secret, perfect person God wants you to be that you can't find, bring yourself with you into relationship with him. And for those of you who are here today as seekers, I hope that this version of God is one that shines through. I hope that today the myths that you may have held about him for so many years have been vanquished. That you now see a God that is not tyrannical, nor is he nitpicky. He doesn't pass down orders, and he doesn't judge every single decision you make that is morally within his bounds. All he wants is for people to come be within his will, do what is right, and be unique followers of him. So friends, come into this relationship and be in love with the creator who wants you for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Thank you for all these people. Please grant us with peace in our decision making. Affirm who you truly are so that we may give up our anxieties, our darknesses, the issues we have when it comes to picking something. May we do this because we now know who you are that we may now be unique in you 
and bring our own special light that shines and reflects who you are. Let us be people of you in all that we do. Thank you again. And bless the time of worship that is about to come up. And in your name we pray. Amen.